Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung as the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on, pays tributes to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Yarra and gives respects to Elders past, present and emerging. You're listening to a Yarra Libraries podcast. We'd say we're always fabulous here, but this week we're especially so. The Melbourne Fashion Festival is almost here, so we're putting you in the mood by sharing a particularly stylish author talk. Last year, we hosted the fabulous writer and artist Sally Gray in conversation with fashion curator Laura Yotsich. On a cold midwinter night, they met to discuss Sally's new book, Friends, Fashion and Fabulousness, The Making of an Australian Style, and the seemingly disparate connections between fashion, art history, gay liberation, and even Gough Whitlam. This is an edited recording. So Dr Sally Gray is a creative thinker whose self-crafted career has been independent and inventing. She is currently a writer, curator, artist, concept developer and creative producer with projects realised nationally and internationally under the umbrella of the arts consultancy she founded in May 1994. Most recently, Sally has published the book Friends, Fashion and Fabulousness, The Making of an Australian Style. So that's that beautiful pink book up the back there. And she launched it in Sydney on November 14, 2017. The first edition of the book has now sold out, so we're pleased to be able to launch the second edition here tonight. So please grab yourself a copy, it's free. Tonight, Sally will be in conversation with fashion scholar and curator Laura Yotsich. <laughs> I wasn't going to make a mistake on that one. Among Laura's many exhibitions and research projects, she's curated the Linda Jackson Bush Couture Exhibition at the National Gallery of Victoria in 2012. Please welcome Laura and Sally. So, Sally, let's begin with the title of the book, Friends, Fashion, Fabulousness, The Making of an Australian Star. It points to an intertwining of friendships, creativity and a particular time in Australia. At the centre of your narrative are four people, Linda Jackson, Jenny Key, Peter Tully and David McDermott. The book appears to me to be a cultural history written as both a collective biography and a biography of an era, a specific time and place in Australian history, seen through the lens of four creative lives and an extended group of people around them. So can you just explain in a nutshell the focus of your book and why you took the approach you did? Okay. I've always been interested in the space between things, like, you know, a conventional view of history, cultural history, art history, is that there's kind of causal you know, somewhat linear development of events and and in terms of individual creatives, a sort of linear development of an individual creative life. So what I was interested in is the space between people and the space between people and place, place and ideas, people and ideas, people and history. So I undertook this rather unwieldy, a rather episodic approach to telling this story. And the things that motivated me were quite personal. Like I had this very strong impulse that relationships to Asia had to be in there somewhere, but there was very little extant evidence of the influence of Asia on Australian fashion. 
And so I just had to follow my instincts and just insist to myself that the pathways that I would follow would be the ones I was genuinely interested in and that I would somehow craft a coherent narrative out of these apparently completely disparate things like the development of gay liberation and vintage fashion, for example. So I knew I was taking on a very complex set of ideas that were apparently unrelated and I was just determined to reveal the connections between them. Yeah, something like that. And you do close together um, well throughout the book and and to the reader, I think, you know, there's, there's a real coherence as the light, the light goes on and you go, oh, yes, okay, now I understand those connections that seem to be quite disparate, yeah. I'll just talk a little bit about the, the structure of the book. It's structured in a chronological manner um, across two cities and there's international travel in between for... But there's Melbourne appears at the as the birthplace or beginnings for the majority of the group's background. That's Linda, David and Peter. And um, as a formal and informal training ground for them. And Sydney becomes the place to be, uh, the place that one could probably say fully enabled their creativity at the time. One foregrounds the other. Although all four had lived outside of Sydney prior to 1973 when they all connected up in Sydney, uh, it became their chosen home where Linda, David, Peter and Jenny and others could express themselves and make a life. Can you just comment briefly on the culture of both places at the time and what drew everyone in the narrative to Sydney in the 1970s? Yes, well, that was one of the main questions I had asked myself for years because I was also one of those people who left Melbourne and, like many people, left Melbourne, did something global and then ended somewhere else. And for many people, that somewhere else was Sydney. And I often ask myself, what was it that made me not leave Sydney? Why did I not return to Melbourne? And I was never interested in in any of that Sydney-Melbourne stuff, you know, that's so irritating. Um, So I was interested in investigating what it was about the city of Sydney that acted as a kind of magnetic force field for so many young people at that time. And a lot of it was that Sydney was... I mean, Sydney is a very uh, light place. It's, um, it's made of sandstone. It's built on sandstone. Its, its principal old buildings are sandstone. It's golden. It reflects light. It has a lot of light. Um, that light... Uh, has an impact on the intensity of colour and the fact that it is um, a sort of temperate slash subtropical city means that it has a very lush and um, sensual atmosphere compared with the city of Melbourne which has a completely different climate, is made of a dark bluestone, has a different, a different ambience altogether. So there was a kind of lightness in Sydney, in, in both metaphorically and literally, and a, and a kind of colourfulness, both metaphorically and literally, that just drew these people. And it coincided with the election of the Whitlam government and a sense of cultural optimism. It also coincided with the prehistory of gay liberation, where Sydney was, as Dennis Altman says, the place you went to be gay. 
So there was there were all kinds of um, magnetic forces that operated at the time for people from Melbourne who travelled and who were looking for a kind of ongoing uh, adventure and inquiry in their lives, who didn't want to return to their roots but wanted to keep on uh, travelling. And by travelling, I mean literally travelling culturally into newness. And and because of the um, colour and optimism that sort of coincided, it was like the cause and the effect almost became a self-perpetuating set of circumstances. Yes, and there's also that aspect of um, light and and water. Water Absolutely. Light on water. Light on water. And and the Emerald City, you know, the idea of sparkling water, Mm -hmm. sparkling. And as David said in a letter to Fran and Linda when he and Peter decided from Thailand that they would move to Sydney, he used the term Tinseltown, which is the term that's used for Hollywood. So this idea of Emerald City, Tinseltown, shining, bright, full of light, Mm -hmm. etc., yeah. I'm just going to sort of move back to Melbourne and the beginnings and part of the wider circle of people whose creative lives intersected and ran in tandem with Linda, Jenny, Peter and David were Paul Craft and Clarence Chai, who opened the shop Paraphernalia in the Metropole Arcade in Melbourne in 1970. They sold decorative arts and second-hand clothing and textiles, which they picked up in junk shops and markets. Clarence also sold designs under his own label and Jenny Bannister's early fashions. So what was the importance of a place like Paraphernalia to the group, which you write about quite extensively in the book? Yeah, I was very concerned to trace the prehistory of the um, Flamingo Park Circle because at the time I wrote this book, everybody knew, everybody in inverted commas, knew that there'd been this phenomenon called Flamingo Park and there was... Linda Jackson and Jenny Key and it was this big cultural Australiana thing and so everybody had a greater or lesser knowledge that there was this group of people in um, in Sydney but I wanted to trace the prehistory I wanted to trace the prehistory of the relationships and also the sensibility and that's why I spent quite a bit of time describing the Melbourne scene and the meeting of Clarence and Paul and Murray, who's in the room, and Paul Craft. I had a strong feeling that the Paul Craft-Clarence Chai phenomenon in Melbourne was very important and had never been written about. And it was an opportunity to, yeah, to put some roots into this story and to trace... Linda Jackson's lineage back into paraphernalia. So to answer your question, the importance of paraphernalia was twofold in relation to this book. One is the first iteration of paraphernalia in um, the Metropole Arcade where Clarence and Paul sold both bric-a-brac and um, vintage clothing. And Linda Jackson worked in uh, Clarence Ties. There were two shops uh, Paul Craft was in charge of the bric-a-brac and uh, Clarence was 
the uh, vintage clothing and uh, the beginnings of making what you might call fashion from vintage fabrics and uh, vintage clothing. And Linda Jackson worked for Clarence. And so in a way, Linda Jackson is completely enmeshed in the history of paraphernalia and therefore is part of the whole lineage and the the genesis of some of the ideas. So there's that. And then there's the fact that Paul Craft gave Linda Jackson her first exposure in Sydney when he, as a by then quite a globally significant decorative arts dealer, uh, had a stall at the Winter Antique Fair at Benithen Galleries in Sydney and uh, gave Linda a spot where she put her earliest publicly um, exposed fashions. And um, that was then seen by Jenny Key, who was told by friends to go along to um, Benithen Gallery because there was this phenomenal clothing there and she just better get along there and just better have a look at it. And so she did. And, And she was totally inspired by what Linda had created and felt that... it she would love to have Linda's things in the shop that she just opened called Flamingo Park. So there's that. But the other thing that I thought was really important is the relationship at that time between decorative arts dealing and fashion. And, you know, fashion is always in an ecology that relates to art and design of all kinds and craft. And But in that moment... Decorative arts dealing had a very big role in um, the cultural learning of this group of people. It was through decorative arts and the collecting of tat, as it was called, they learned design history and, and cultural history and learned the relationship between fashion history and the history of decorative arts. So, so paraphernalia was vital in all those complex ways. And I wanted those people's story to be told. I wanted Clarence's story to be told. Um, And it had been told to some extent by Danielle Whitfield, who's also here, uh, when she wrote about independent fashion in Australia and noted in an essay that um, Clarence was the Flamingo Park of Melbourne. But I, I wanted to put Clarence into the lineage of this other what became bigger and more recognised story. And you start off here in, in Melbourne, in Carlton, a story story from here, uh, and you talk about the houses that they were moving in and out of and um, and when they were all sort of really, many of them meeting up here in Melbourne and you discuss about sort of collabor- in the book this important point of collaboration and shared sensibilities. And I, I'll just say a, a quote, say, um, you know, focusing on the creative lives of the people that were involved and a mutually enhancing cultural influence that was in large part to do with their associations with each other and their shared collective aesthetic preoccupations. And I really haven't just mentioned paraphernalia. Um, can you just describe a bit about what those shared aesthetics look like? I'm thinking about the discovery of, for instance, 
the Art Deco, which was overlooked at that time in the 70s. That's right. So it's hard to think back to a time when there was no internet and a much slower dissemination of ideas and proximity to people who were like-minded and with whom one could share um, things to do with cultural knowledge and the transfer of cultural knowledge and the sharing of um, aesthetic preoccupations was much more important because you learned from, you know, uh, not just formal education, but you learned from what others were learning. And so if someone had a passion for Art Deco, for example, which, as you say, there was no uh, global market for Art Deco when um, Paul and Clarence and others in their circle started to collect it in Boomtown, Melbourne, where there was plenty of it because... You know, Melbourne was such an incredible source of very valuable decorative arts for this dealing phenomenon. Um, So they were sharing knowledge. And as one of the um, people in the book, Peter Morton, who was also a decorative arts dealer, says there were no books on any of this then. You know, you had to go into the archives of the libraries and read old dusty catalogues and things and and find out for yourself and then you would be quickly um, drawn to anybody who had similar kind of knowledge and with whom you could share that knowledge. So so the enthusiasms were things like an historicist relationship to contemporary design. So they were interested in learning from past design eras, in particular from early modernist design. You know, they were mad for the Bauhaus, very interested in Art Nouveau, very interested in Art Deco, and other um, early modernist design, like, you know, arts and crafts and, and different movements and shared knowledge about that. So so there was that, and then it, it, there was a huge enthusiasm for the Ballet Russe. So any anyone who had a book on the Ballet Russe or anyone who had a book on Sonia Delaunay, um, when there was a major book on Sonia Delaunay uh, published in English in 1972, and, and everyone, I ordered it and shared it and went to each other's houses and looked at it on the coffee table because... That was how you learned uh, about things that were not commonly understood because you couldn't just Google it. You couldn't find stuff out. And so this this shared thing, it was interpersonal, it was interpersonal sharing. And then by making things, like, for example, if, you know, Linda starts experimenting with ideas derived from Sonia Delaunay, then everyone gets really enthusiastic about it and and they want to have a bit of something or other to do with Sonia Delaunay, and and there becomes a kind of cultural enthusiasm that's shared by a group of people who who then swap things and not just information but objects and uh, clothing and experiences. That's right. And one of the things that you um, uh, in your exhibition that was at Wollongong Art Gallery, um, Hand and Heart, and David McDermott and Linda Jackson's collaborations, there, that aspect, for instance, the Ballet Russe and Sonia Delaunay and how you broke that down in, in the exhibition space, and really putting the book in place and showing that, that this was you know the, the source of, of information which... Of course, we have to think back and think. Well, this was the only only way 
um, or through the magazines or, or whatever, other than travel to actually see these items. But within that exhibition, in the final um, area, you talked about gifts and uh, how the exchange of items that, for instance, Linda and David made for one another and that you get a real sense of the intermeshing of, of, um, of, meshing of, of the ideas and exchanges that were happening that were so tangible when you see it in the gift-giving. That's content. right, and the, and the wearing of each other's stuff. Yes. So that, um, I mean, part of the motivation for me in doing this research was to try and understand what it was for me that I was involved in this network of people. Like, I actually wore Linda's clothes and Jenny's clothes, and so I was interested in the kind of, you know, the haptics of it, so mm. to speak. Like, what was the bodily experience of being inside this kind of clothing? And, in fact, that was the first motivation for the first thing I ever wrote about Linda was she asked me to write a catalogue essay for her years and years ago when she, it was a painting exhibition. It had nothing to do with fashion. But it was the first opportunity I had to try to understand what it was for me, a feminist, who was not a follower of fashion. I've never really in any way been a follower of fashion. I never collected fashion, never been a wearer of labels or anything like that. What was it that drew me to to this kind of wearing and so you know part of it was having to understand what that was for me personally and and that happened for everybody who was you know people swapped their art for a, a dress or my ex-husband Brian Sayer who was also a debt proof arts dealer which is half the reason that I was in this circle would sell furniture to Linda Jackson or Jenny Key and so I would then get clothes so there'd be these contras where people were swapping. So I, I would get, you know, a credit where I would go to <laughs> Linda's studio with a bundle of fabric that I'd chosen myself and, and say, I'd like a dress that's kind of a bit this and a bit that and we'd sit on the floor and have a few cups of tea and and we'd come up with this thing and it would be, you know, it would be a collaboration. It would be a discussion that led to the creation of a material object which in the end was her work, you know, her design, her making, but a collaborative process. And, and that went on between all of the people in that circle, the swapping and gifting of um, material culture. I probably should just emphasise when we're talking about going there and, and, and discussing with Linda having a piece made, that all these were actually one-off pieces, particularly when you see the hand-painted pieces that David McDermott collaborated with Linda in her work, Peter Tully's jewellery, which we'll talk a little bit further on about David and Peter's work, but one-off or certain iterations then of a design um, that was then sold through Flamingo Park um, Frock Salon, but indeed this idea of art fashion that was also put forward in, particularly in, in the early 80s where there were throughout the 80s some art fashion exhibitions that were um, seminal, like at art, the Art Gallery of New South Wales that Jane de Telegram um, curated. But this idea of the performative aspect of dress, and that will now bring me to the question about the idea of fabulousness that you see in the title of your book. Let's talk about that. Why? What was it that that was actually fabulous? It seems to me it's both uh, um, 
external than what you wore, but an internal idea too. That being mm. fabulous. Yeah. Um, in fact, when I was um, sharing the drafts of this book around, including to Laura, um, to get feedback from trusted colleagues. One of them said, I don't like the title. No one will know what you mean by fabulousness. Don't use that title. <laughs> and and as Annie, who's sitting there, knows, you know, we played with, with so many different titles and this title just kept happening, you know. And, and it was... It just, it just had to be that it was fabulousness because it was this amorphous, indescribable idea that people were putting forward that was to do with a new queer consciousness. It was to do with people who were not, um, at this stage, you know, homosexuality was still illegal in New South Wales and there was an insistence that uh, straight society could just bite the dust because we were fabulous anyway and Peter Tully was a fantastic practitioner of that particular consciousness that fabulousness was an assertion of political the political insistence on you would determine how you were seen whether people liked it or not so there's that in this whole idea of fabulousness. And there's um, also a very conscious um, adoption of the idea of fabulous by um, Sylvia and the Synthetics, which was this queer performance group in, uh, in Sydney led by a very, very famous uh, drag queen called Doris Fish, who later became hugely famous in San Francisco and um, was given the keys to the city and was, you know, just completely... They were just, you know, uh, she was amazing. But they all had business cards that just said, I'm fabulous. <laughs> so that was their job. You know, their job was to be fabulous. That was their business. And so, and it's also part of that moment of optimism where, you know, it was before neoliberalism had really sort of dug in and it was in that period that Thomas Piketty talks about between the Second World War and the late 70s, where there was this sense of hope, you know, that we were going to be progressive, we were going to evolve as a species and we were going to have women's liberation and we were going to have gay liberation and we were going to have equality and it was all going to be... Uh, there was going to be progress. And so this idea of fabulousness was part of this kind of optimistic ins insistence that small-mindedness and colourlessness could just get out of the way and that this fabulousness was coming on through. So that's really why it had to be there. It's a very sad story. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings me to the next question really is about that time, a sense of hope and optimism and the 70s in Australia. And Jenny Key had gone overseas in, at the age of 18 um, in 1968. Uh, she was born in Sydney and she went and lived in London and spent a number of, of very seminal years for her there <coughs> working at the Chelsea Antique Market, 
um, with the Australian-born um, Vern Lambert, who had a stall there. And so she talks about having her fashion education there. In London, of course, at that time in the late 70s, uh, uh, late 60s and early 70s, she was exposed to the you know, youth-oriented fashion that was happening there. Linda and um, her partner, Fran Moore, and Peter Tully set off and travelled through Asia and ended up in Paris, and they were away for two years. And then they all sort of seemed to filter back um, to Australia, 72, 73. And, of course, we know this is the time, 72, when the Whitlam government was voted in, and there was that sense that something could be done here for creative creative types wanting to come back. So if you could just elaborate mm. a little bit on, on that specific time. Yes, and it, that, that again is kind of hard to imagine back to a time where all these expats who'd left because Australia was so boring and had been, you know, there'd been a Liberal government for 23 years and... It was very. It was a very bland society. It was there was huge censorship. It was closed. It was a closed society, and people left. I left. Lots of people left. And then in seventy two, it was like oh, the lights went on back in Australia, and so a lot of people came back, and they had seen Australia from the outside. So they had this perspective and a confidence having, you know, lived in other places and seen how things were done in other places. And so they came back with this sense that they could contribute and that there could be a new way in this country. So really, all this stuff in this book is kind of part of that ferment, you know, Martin Sharp came back and did all those things that he's famous for. And, yeah, a lot of people. The film industries took off. Um, yeah, it was a very, very dynamic time for Australian culture and for writing Australian stories of all kinds, whether it's writing it in fashion or in film or in novels or whatever, you know, just sort of saying, to hell with the cultural cringe... Let's make something amazing here. And, you know, I mean, obviously it wasn't a movement. Nobody put out a notice that said, you know, come back to Australia, we're going to make it fabulous. But, you know, that's what that's what people were doing. And I think there were a lot of um, promises there, for instance, with the foundation of, you know, support of the film industry, as we mentioned, mm. and other, mm. of the arts, real funding that came through mm. the, the Whitman government and um, uh, you know this sense that I thought in reading your book too about I mean Australia to, to the world but also the world discovering Australia and um, there's this great quote that you open the book with with the um, shoe designer of Lanik who only as late as um, 2007 um, said that you know in the 70s Australia was the most exciting creative place um, what do you think he was... I mean, I know he's looking back. What do you think he detected? Well, really, he was just talking about the fact that he knew Vern Lambert. He, he knew Anna Piaggi, and through those people he knew Jenny Key, and he knew of Flamingo Park and Peter Tully. And so it's kind of hearsay in the sense that he got this impression 
that Australia was the most creative place in the world. It doesn't mean that anyone else thought that. Um, <laughs> it doesn't mean that Australia was on the map culturally or anything like that, in fashion or in any other way. But he did say that. He did say it in interview to Professor Peter McNeil uh, in 2007 or whatever you know, whatever yes, the date right. was. Um, and and it's the impression he gained from knowing those people that there was this hugely dynamic thing going on. And Anna Piaggi publicised them in Italian Vogue. Um, she publicised uh, Jenny and Linda's work and Peter's work. And so there was... But it, in no way could it be said that their work was re- recognised overseas. Not really. Not like Akira Isagawa is now or anything like that. It's just it's just not comparable. Actually, to, just to give us a bit of sort of background about Flamingo Park Frock Salon and the Flamingo Folies Parades. So uh, in 1973, Ginny Key come back from overseas. She had this idea to open up this... Salon, and that was something quite different from from anything else, and um, and that talked about how she met um, Linda Jackson at the Benighton Galleries Winter Fair. Um, Linda was showing actually at that time she was making really uh, retro inspired 1950s inspired fashion using vintage fabrics that and she was making up into little sort of shirts um, and play suits and dresses and, and things like that. So Jenny saw her work and that was the beginning really of the two of them starting to work together for a, a collaboration that lasted for seven years. Now, what they also did, which was um, quite, I guess, you know, an important part of the, the visuals, I guess, and the, the performative aspect, was the Flamingo Follies annual parades that ran from 1974 to 1981. And they were really eagerly anticipated events and, and they incorporated art, fashion and music. Now, you were at um, a number of them and at the first one in 1974 that was held um, you know, off-site at Hingara Restaurant in China Chinatown, and can you just describe the, yeah. the atmosphere really? What was, yes, was so, like? so at that stage, Chinatown was you know, it was a very down home Chinatown, it hadn't been sort of all tricked up the way our Chinatowns are tricked up now. Um, and the Hingara was a very humble, ordinary Chinese restaurant that was Jenny Key's father's favorite lunch spot because he worked at the Haymarket, and Chinatown was right in the Haymarket, which was where the big wholesale and retail market was then. So the the runway was the restaurant tables. So the models walked on the tables and the audience sat round the edges of the table. So, you know, it was on maybe a sort of L shape or an E shape or something like that. And it was very sort of not glamorous. It was it was more funky than glamorous. Uh, but the audience was everybody from society to um, people in drag to you know art dealers, students, feminists, incredible mix. So it was a cultural event as opposed to a fashion event. It was nothing to do with the fashion world. Vogue happened to be there and did cover it in a small, um, you know, half page or something in black and white. But the 
the movers and shakers in the fashion industry were not there. It was a cultural thing. It was it was a phenomenon. It was, um, you know, I think one of the newspapers called it a happening. So it was a happening. <laughs> it was a happening rather than a fashion event. But it was, in terms of fashion history, it definitely, you know, has a place there for sure. Yeah. And just thinking about what the fashions was like and what was what was different. Linda, Jenny, Peter and David, they were all intensely interested in the natural and built environment around them. And they had a love for the local landscape but also had a sense for the ironic and the kitsch. And Peter produced jewellery made from cheap plastic in the shape of Australia, you know, brooches that were Australia, the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge. And there was Vegemite and Blinky Bill and other iconic forms of Australiana which were incorporated into their work, all, all four of them. Um, but there, se there seems to be a tension here between the literal and the form of the imagery and the subversive way in which it was applied. And the imagery can only be Australian, but the kitsch aspect and some of the materials employed, such as plastic, and laminex, um, as you point out in the book, challenged the hierarchies of taste. And, and can you just comment on what was going on there and its impact in terms of art and, and fashion? Yeah. yeah, again, it's really hard to conceive of how out there that seemed to be. We've become so used to a kind of um, incorporation of Australiana imagery and everything now, but to use Australiana at that stage was regarded as just completely bad taste. <laughs> One, it was Australian, and that automatically meant that it wasn't cultural. Um, and two, it was like, you know, it's a bit obvious, isn't it? That type of thing, like, isn't that sort of... A, kitsch and and so there was a complete embrace of the idea of kitsch and a complete refusal to adhere to the hierarchies of good taste uh, of um sober sober good taste and the use of plastics and the use of high key color and the use of um uh, australiana imagery uh, vulgar vulgar Australiana imagery was regarded as outrageous and it took some years before it became um, fashionable so it was subculturally adopted instantly subculturally it was like adored straight away because there was an embrace of the ironic and the oh, just a sort of a, a way of thinking about art and culture that was kind of rebellious, I suppose, and insistent on difference, I suppose, really is what it is. And so it took a while. I mean, in the end, Peter's jewellery was in all the, you know, in the art museum shops and everything. But in the beginning, it was really, oh, gee, you know, really plastic, kitsch, Australiana. And the same with Jenny and, Jenny and Linda's clothing. Yeah. You know, I mean, people thought it was vulgar. Like Jenny's knits. Yeah, Jenny's knits with koalas all over them. Very <laughs> vulgar, very vulgar. And also, you know, just the very high-key colour was regarded mm. as, you know, if you had any taste, you wouldn't really go there. And a lot of the um, newspaper coverage used the word colour in a quite ambiguous way, like colourful. 
you know, sort of like, it could mean fabulous or it could mean, oh, well, you know, they really didn't know any better, so they had bright colours. Yeah. The other aspect of what they did incorporate into um, their works and fashion and art was um, imagery, Indigenous Australian imagery motifs, um, particularly in the painted textiles produced by David for Linda's fashion. And I know in the exhibition catalogue essay um, and the exhibition and the catalogue ex- essay for Hand and Heart Shall Never Part, the fashion collaboration of Linda Jackson and David McDermott, which you curated for Wollongong in 2016 and I, I did see that at exhibition and in this book also you tackled this issue and you state that Linda, David, Jenny and Peter quote all used Aboriginal culture, cultural icons and motifs like boomerangs, shields, dots, handprints and cross hatching. Sometimes it was appropriated from 1950s kitsch, uh, tourist kitsch to signify a form of ironic vernacular. And sometimes it was taken from original artworks. Jenny, Linda, Peter and David supported Indigenous self-determination. They nonetheless uncritically employed Aboriginal motifs to denote Australianness. So how was this viewed by the group at the time and the wider public and, and also Aboriginal Yeah, um, very, very difficult subject and um, very difficult to talk about. Um, I've never approved of the use of... I never bought or wore anything like that and I thought it was a big blind spot even at the time. So when it came to writing about the work of these people, I knew I was going to have a hard time trying to find a way to talk about it that wasn't just kind of judgmental and accusatory and and putting the values of one time into another time and all that kind of thing. So I think it was cultural blindness and... I think it was unacceptable. Uh, the current exhibition development process at the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences in Sydney is going through a quite rigorous process of dealing with this and uh, it's tough to recognise what kind of um, profound misunderstanding of cultural rights that kind of work is yeah and at the time it was so often used in support of Australians and and that was the justification it was like well yeah we're Australian and we're celebrating Australianness and there wasn't an understanding about Aboriginal sovereignty and cultural sovereignty and uh, intellectual property rights there wasn't Mm. uh, by this group of people yeah While the imagery that the four used was often celebratory, much of it had a political edge, and this leads me to Peter and David's work and queer culture in the 70s and 80s in Australia. Homosexuality was was only decriminalised in New South Wales in 1984, and in 1972 David was the first Australian man to be arrested in the course of demonstrating for gay rights. And you state that David and Peter, through their work and their self-fashioning, 
were, make, to quote, making a world that was more exciting, adventurous, fabulous, and more equal than what was on offer from straight society. And in doing so, they became known as the art and fashion queens. So both David and Peter had experienced the hedonistic gay culture in New York in the early 1980s, particularly the Paradise Garage and the dancing. And their experiences overlapped with the Sydney gay and lesbian Mardi Gras kicking off in 1978. In the early 1980s, Peter became its artistic director. And in the late 1980s, um, when David had returned from Sydney, he took on that role too. So you talk about David and Peter's excitement of experiencing the New York scene and how they translated this back to Australia. And can you talk, just elaborate a bit on on the how important the, the cultural and political importance of the Sydney Mardi Gras was at that time, and the involvement, of course, close right. Um, well, it was Peter Tully who created the look of the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras in the very early days. He was in the first demonstration in 1978. It was pretty much a political demonstration. Some people dressed up. Peter was one of them. But it wasn't really like a, 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 a cultural phenomenon in the way that it became. And Peter always had this idea that you had to demonstrate what kind of world you were wanting to create. You had to actually make it. And so he set out to do that. So David was the intellectual who had the reading and the understanding of gay history and the political hard-headedness. Um, he was a, a, you know, a committed political activist and all his work was committed political activist art, or most of it was. For Peter, it was more about um, expressiveness and insisting on freedom and the expression of freedom. And so Peter's, and, and of course they were both there in 78 and in their different ways were the makers of it, but it was Peter was, you know, he became known as Mr Mardi Gras because he was the one who created the look, who um, ran the workshops. He was the one who got the space they rented. Um, he was the one who pulled the teams of volunteers together and inspired them to make all the floats and all the um, performative street parade stuff. So it was like it went from Peter making jewellery to Peter making costumes that were sort of body size to making costumes that were bigger than body size to making gigantic uh, performative street sculptures to make this cultural um, phenomenon of the Sydney, at that stage it was called Sydney Gay Mardi Gras wasn't until 88 that and lesbian got to be in there thanks to you know a level of activism that had to make that happen yeah I mean that absolute fabulousness as you described I mean growing and and becoming bigger and bigger mm. and, mm. and, and, and getting themselves a, and the event a bigger itself. and bigger forum on yes. which to do it like the dance floor at the paradise garage was the most incredible phenomenon and that gave him a bigger phenomenon, a bigger uh, framing and uh, stage than making jewellery and then the street 
Just explain what the Paradise Garage was in New York. Um, well, it was. Um, it started in 1977. It was a private club, a membership-only club. It was black, um, very few white people. It was small. Its DJ was the very, very famous Larry Levan, who was the inventor of, um, of garage music, house music, along with you know um, uh, another. DJ in Chicago, the two of them, uh, who'd grown up together in New York, kind of made the whole beginning of dance music. Um, so it was, it had the probably the best sound system in the world. Uh, absolutely extraordinary phenomenon. Millions of books have been written about it. In fact, that's where my research started. I knew that I had to find the words to describe what the Paradise Garage was like and why why it was what it was and what was it. And that's how that's that's really what took me back into academic research to find a way to describe this cultural phenomenon. And and then that led into writing about Dave McDermott, and then that led into writing about all of this. And clearly, they brought those experiences and in the book you write about um quotes from you know david's letters saying just you know how i mean new york and and almost overwhelmed by what he was experiencing there and um and then that aspect is also both of them you know, came back and um just brought that excitement yeah and, and 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 people were looking for a cultural vehicle to express gay liberation and that cultural vehicle and that sort of political impetus came together. Yeah. Mm. So throughout the 1980s, Linda, Jenny, David and Peter, they all experienced local and international acclaim, exposure through their work. However, in the early 1990s, uh, Linda closed her Bush Couture label. She left Sydney and moved to Central Australia where she concentrated on her painting. Peter and David, who had both been diagnosed HIV positive in the late 1980s, died of AIDS-related illnesses in 1992 and 1995 respectively. And um, in 1995, Jenny closed Flamingo Park. You write of a sense of, quote, changing times and changing tastes that appeared at the end of the 1980s and the beginning of the 1990s, where a political and social conservatism had developed in the wake of the risk-taking and utopian optimism of the previous decades. You state that, quote, emancipatory, socially experimental ideas were out of step with the times. So classic taste was reinstated and the visual expression located in a more innocent, naive, ironic or optimistic love of place had given way to an arch-restrained approach to design synonymous with international sophistication. What was happening culturally and politically and how did this sort of affect the perception of Lindy, Linda, Jenny, Peter and David's work at this time, really? We're, we're getting to sort of 1990. Yeah. Oh, gosh, it's so complicated. complicated. Um, well, my current area of interest is the beginnings of neoliberalism and so I'm kind of enmeshed in that so just to give a sort of simple quick answer because I know we're running out of time is to say that you know there was well it's the the Reagan and Thatcher moment really and it's global and it's it's the beginning of the counter-revolution really that um, was instated 
in the 80s. And so culture, I'm not saying culture follows economics in some sort of simplistic way, but culture is an expression of its time. And, you know, it just was more conservative. And it was the conservative forces were beginning to take back the territory that had been won by progressive forces. Mm -hmm. And that is expressed in culture. And so everyone wanted to look neat and tidy and do power dressing and big hair. And I mean, yes, it it was being colourful and a bit out there was like very, very naive, hippie-ish, bit dumb really, you know, that was how it was viewed. History is like that. There are big changes and shifts. In shifts, yeah. yeah. And, you know, AIDS had a huge impact on culture across the world, in the Western world. In you know, huge numbers of people died who were some of the most creative, innovative, powerful thinkers in the world, from Foucault to David McDermott, you know. It did have a huge impact on what was possible in the world. Yes, and that, that yeah, yeah, this is a good moment, isn't yeah. it? Yes, yes, some of David McDermott's aphorisms, um, which you actually recently had put on the Underground Project in, in London, where they're, they're there in your face on the, on the underground. It's the most amazing thing to have actually got up. I'll finish with the concept of making an Australian style. It's in your subtitle of the book. And the legacy of this group of people's work and the way they fashioned and created lives. And what do you think, where do you think they sort of sit now artistically and culturally? And what sort of influence do you think their work and the, and the way they approached it at, has now? Well, I think one of the biggest impacts that Jenny and Linda have had is in the ongoingness of the aesthetic through the work of Romance Was Born and a new generation of younger designers who've taken them up and and, and have continued this sort of out-there, colourful thing. In t- David's legacy, I think, is ongoing in a quite serious way. I think David's globally, I think, you know, scholars are gradually understanding who this Australian artist was, who was pretty much unknown. And Peter, unfortunately, Peter's legacy is, I think his legacy is sort of inserted in the history of Mardi Gras. But because uh, because Peter died without a will, his estate was never managed and yes it's it's a bit unfortunate that you know control of peter's copyright is not it's not it's not being managed and so no one can sort of write about peter really because they can't get copyright clearance to use his work you know to illustrate the writing of his work uh, about his work so look i don't know what the legacy is in any ongoing way but just more or less what i've said yeah Thank you, Sally. That was Sally Gray discussing fashion, fabulousness and the history of Australian style. We run regular author talks at all branches of Yarra Libraries, so please keep an eye on our website. For you, we'd recommend our regular clothing swaps. Our next one is June 13th at Collingwood Library, 
So gather up five not-so-you items of clothing and bring them along to swap for five fantastic new-to-you items. If you're keen to read Friends, Fashion and Fabulousness, please pop into your local branch and chat to one of our very fashionable librarians or place a reservation online. In the meantime, go forth and be fabulous.